We'll be in Acts chapter 2 this morning if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. But I want to talk about the last time that we moved. Because the last time that we moved, I had the privilege of cleaning out 17 years worth of stuff we needed really bad. Uh, You've probably had an attic. We had an attic that was filled with the boxes for the big things that I was afraid maybe we would have to ship back for warranty work. Or I'd want to sell it on eBay. So I saved all those boxes. And then Andrea, being the very wise mother and homemaker that she was had saved in these massive trash bags and also totes, uh, very large totes, uh, every article of clothing that wasn't stained, ripped, or torn beyond recognition and had washed it and folded it carefully, placed it into a bag or a tote, labeling boy or girl, two months, three months, two toddler, three toddler, and on down the line in an effort to never buy clothing for our children until they reached middle school. And it almost worked. Thanks be to God. That is one way to survive uh, very increased living expenses. But it was as we were cleaning this out, uh, it was two double axled trailers full of uh, stuff. Uh, and after we donated it, it was a, it was a full week after we had uh, completed that attic cleanout before we moved that Andrea said, have you seen the bag of baby blankets. And you know they're not just baby blankets. They're like baby's first blanket or blanket that's really a quilt my mom made, things like that. Like the loadedest question that you could possibly ask. And of course, as the caring husband I was, I said, honey, what was it in? It was in a black garbage bag. And I'm thinking what you're thinking. And I said, well, where did you last see it? And you guessed it in the attic. When things that aren't a a priority in our life uh, become deprioritized, they fall off the list. And maybe we'll put them in an an area of life where we have the unimportant things, the, the stuff we just don't need right now. And those things that are really somewhere on our list of priority, but briefly weren't, when they get placed in that pile of things that aren't important at all, They can get lost, and they can get tossed. Now, old stuff isn't always junk. Not everything in our attic was thrown away. How many of you had uh, hands? How many of you had a car that took two keys, ever, at all? And okay, in first service somehow, no one. I mean, my first car had these exact keys. Okay, now how many of you guys had, or maybe even ate out of, containers like these? Tupperware, multicolored, who had the matching? Did you have the match set? You went to those parties too much if you had the match set. Sometimes stuff is tossed because it's a bad idea. Sometimes because it's old, worn out, or broken. I think I have a great example of a bad idea. This is a horrible idea. How many of you had a console TV that took up the space of a couch and then never broke but held the new TV? Go ahead and admit it. We did too. When I was in fifth grade, we moved into a house that had one of these, and there was a mortgage on it. It was massive. They left it for us. We sat a TV on it. I mounted an LCD over the top of it just a couple of years ago. It is finally gone because some stuff really does need to go. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands here. (laughs) Who decided we needed a blanket for the toilet? (laughs) Like... I remember going into my my grandma's basement bathroom and thinking, I need the blanket. It's cold. But we got toilet snuggie, and I'm the one that's cold. 
Sometimes we get rid of stuff because there's new and improved that promises to make our life better. And in a digital age, it's not uncommon for you and I to to strive for peak productivity and maximum efficiency. Easy for me to say. Uh, we, we swipe and we click and we, we tap in hopes that our calendars, they can just get organized perfectly. We schedule and we pack in as much as possible. And we don't want to show anybody our calendar, but if we're honest, it starts at 6 a.m. and goes to like 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night because we believe that we can do better. Nothing wrong with that. I think we can do better too. But I wonder if we maybe need to go back through that pile of stuff that was a priority and then it became stuck with the unimportant and maybe consider whether maybe it needs to be a priority again. Maybe it's an old way. Maybe it's an ancient way. And maybe there's a way that in a digital age we could recover something from an ancient way that looks nothing like these toilets or TVs, but it looks like something that gives life back to the person that says they believe and follow Jesus. And they want to become more like him. I believe that in a digital age, we're fighting a script handed to us by a culture that says you have to be productive. You have to be a rugged individual. And you have to live at peak efficiency every minute of every day. Our culture even fights the same challenge that you fight and that I fight to live at Peak productivity. Mike Rowe in a podcast called The Way I Heard It. You guys might remember him from Dirty Jobs. Mike Rowe is interviewing Dr. John Daly, and they're picking apart what's causing this anxiety to just attack Americans. And they're, they're doing it in a way that they believe the individual has some power, some autonomy in their own lives. So they're not looking to blame big government or big pharma although they may have a part to play, Dr. John reveals these stunning statistics to Mike, showing that our country's mental health crisis is exploding. For many of us, that's not a discovery of any kind. Now, the real discovery that together Mike and John make in this conversation recorded on Mike's podcast is that the attack is coming from within us. The attack is actually from inside of us. The way that we're destroying ourselves is that we're isolating ourselves. So in our effort to achieve abundance, we fulfilled our life, not fulfilled, we filled our life with the technological and the industrial revolution. So when you go to work, you're on a calendar, and you have a specific job. And now because of the digital age, it can become maybe even more productive because you can instantly communicate with everyone else who may be doing something related to what we're doing. But we've taken that technological or digital revolution, we've taken that industrial revolution, and we've internalized it, and we've tried to revolutionize our own lives, our own hearts, and what Mike may be a Christian, and John may be a Christian. 
But what a secular podcast has discovers is through a conversation is that we're destroying ourselves from the inside out, resulting in anxiety and stress and hypertension and more heart attacks than vacations that we were promised. Individuality, productivity, efficiency are killing us. Mike and Dr. John conclude that humanity was destined to live in community. And when they don't, they really don't live. They're alive, but they're only marginally functional. And then from the inside out, they start to explode. And it looks like anxiety and depression. I wonder if you found this to be true in your own life. I wonder if with or without Christ, wherever you are today, I wonder if you found this to be true in your own life where you have productivity, efficiency, rugged individualism, self-made man, where you've taken them and you've placed them at the top of your priority list and things like community have fallen entirely off the list and been placed in the pile of the unimportant because it will not, we believe, bring us the abundant life we'll have if we're just a little more efficient, just a little more productive, we'll be that gloriously rugged individual who really made it. I wonder if there's an ancient way that we can live out in a digital age that undoes all of that anxiety and that stress and the mental health crisis. And I wonder if it's anything like what Mike and Dr. John discovered without Jesus at the center of the conversation. Well, as a church gathered in the name of Jesus, of course, we're going to look at his word. We're going to open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I want to just summarize this whole chapter. But instead of spending 15 minutes summarizing what is one of the greatest stories in Scripture, I invite you to read it. And I will say this verse, I think, encapsulates a large portion of what happens in that second chapter. So we're just going to look at one verse. But be reminded, before this one verse, God's people are gathered in God's city, Jerusalem, where God's Holy Spirit comes down on his gathered apostles and God speaks God's word to God's people through God's people, thereby birthing the church right here. So right after that sermon that Peter preaches, all of the people of God say, what then shall we do? And Georgetown Christian knows the answer, and that is Acts 2.38. You should repent and be, hence right here, be baptized. You should die to your old way of life. You should be raised to new life. Now, what does that new life look like? That new life, I think, is encapsulated in Acts 2.42. So join me in Acts 2.42. Would you guys stand with me and read God's word together? We'll read it out loud together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You, you can sit down. <clears throat> We're just going to go through each one of those, and I'll spend the most time on fellowship. Because I believe that might be the ancient way that we've deprioritized as we've sought to live the most abundantly blessed life that we can live. But we're still going to talk about all four. At Georgetown Christian, wherever you gather, you will experience these four. Be it an elective, a men's or women's study, be it a life group or a ministry team, you'll experience these four in those gatherings of Georgetown Christian. 
So let's start first with the apostles teaching. And Rod, if it's easy to just put all four up at once, I'm down for that, man. But I know you got this thing figured out, so you do what you do. So number one is the apostles teaching. And the apostles teaching, if I could summarize, is what they learned from Jesus about how to follow who? Jesus. So they learned it firsthand, then they taught it to all the new believers. That's where you see people going from a bearded baby bottle holding Bible thumper to a disciple maker. See, they shared the truth of God's word. They, they showed that they were maturing in their image and likeness of Jesus by sharing the truth of God's word with new believers. So the apostles' teaching is, if we could summarize it for us, it would be the Bible. But in their time, there was no New Testament yet. So in their time, they were sharing the way Jesus had understood the, New Test the Old Testament and had applied it to following and becoming like Jesus. And so they taught the new believers the apostles' teaching. Today we call it the New Testament and the Old Testament, or the Bible. Now number two, we're going to spend the preponderance of our time, is fellowship. And fellowship is markedly different than friendship. And the more I talk about this, the more different it appears to be. I believe fellowship is dramatically different than friendship, although I think friendship is a piece of it. Fellowship is different, and here's why. Friends, here, brothers and sisters, here's why. Number one, we're a family. Number two, we, you and I, we, we share God's blessings. We receive God's blessings, and we share them with one another as a blessed people of God, as people who live in the community of Christ, the fellowship of the believers. And so in fellowship, we receive blessing from God and we share blessing. You know when we share it? When we're sick, when we're hurting, when we're dying, when we have financial hardship, maybe whenever in your life something relationally disastrous happens and you're severed from the people that you cling to typically. Do you know what we call that? Sometimes we call it divorce. Sometimes we just call it a, a crisis in a marriage. And when those things happen, if you're in fellowship with believers, then they begin sharing God's blessing with you. Okay, I think the second, oh, I want to, thank you, Rod, before I forget this. Here's four ways, and I'm going to do four more really quick, but you're not going to look them up right now. These are four ways that you can share blessing with one another. Jesus called it loving one another so that all people would know you're my disciples. So we can encourage one another, admonish one another, confess your sins to one another, forgive one another. And here's four more. We can accept, serve, build up, and be hospitable to one another. We can, in those ways, Jesus teaching each of those places, and Paul, we can love one another, share God's blessing with one another. So the second way I think that is so dramatically different than friendship. And we're talking about fellowship. The second thing we saw the church commit themselves to right after they said, I believe, I repent, I will be baptized. This is the second thing that the first church began doing to mature themselves in Jesus Christ, fellowship. The first thing that separates fellowship from friendship, again, is sharing and receiving God's blessing. The second thing that differentiates friendship from fellowship 
is sharing in the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we're united, we're one flesh with one another and with Christ, our head. One way that we share that is by receiving a gift or gifts of the Holy Spirit. Anybody's friends doing that? If you are, we should talk. They are part of a church and don't know it yet. The, the, the receiving and the sharing of those gifts of the Holy Spirit dramatically marks fellowship far and above friendship. And you can see Paul trying to bring this function of the church back into order because it got all jacked up in Corinth. We're not a perfect church. So let's not read this judgmentally. Here's what Paul had to write to that jacked up church in Corinth. He said, a spiritual gift, this is a gift of the Holy Spirit, a spiritual gift is given to us so that we can help each other. And what was Corinth doing it? They were lording it over each other saying, hey, I can speak in tongues and I can prophesy. And you just have measly other gifts that aren't as great and cool as mine. And so Paul's trying to bring it back into alignment to begin to look like the image of Jesus' body should look. And he goes on and he writes, as he's developing this image of the body of Christ, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Because we're a body. That is so different than friendship, is it not? That's what the church committed themselves to when they were first gathered, after they first decided we are going to be followers of Jesus. This was over 2,000 years ago. I wonder, if, I wonder if these ancient believers maybe had a way that might be applicable for us today when we're trying to live this abundant life that's blessed and we're trying to do it with productivity and efficiency, and rugged individuality. The third thing that we see the church commit themselves to, they devoted continuously themselves to the breaking of bread. The church has understood the breaking of bread two ways traditionally. That word's loaded. Traditionally means like from the beginning of the church. So you're including then the church until it became the Catholic and the Protestant churches. But the church for all of time, both Catholic and Protestant, and even before we were split, we understood this to mean two things. Number one, communion. At Georgetown Christian Church, we believe that when Scripture says that when you gather, do this to remember me, that we are supposed to, as Doug led us through, we are supposed to reenact the death and resurrection, the body and blood that seals our new covenant with the Lord. We reenact that as we consume the body and blood, we're reunited as one body in the body of Christ. That's the first interpretation of the breaking of the bread, and the church committed themselves to that, just like we do at Georgetown Christian. Now, the second one, you're going to love this one. The second one is just flat-out eating. Who likes eating? Hey, good news. If you like eating, you like eating? It's biblical, okay? Eating's biblical. I didn't say going to the buffet and plowing seven plates of pizza. That is not biblical. That is diabetes. You do not want to do that. You want to stay biblical. Eating, eating is biblical. Every time our life groups meet together, they're going to eat food. 
you should be part of a life group. The end. We can go home now. Every time our life groups gather, there's either a snack or a whole meal because God's people eat together. You can see it all the way across the New Testament. In the history of the church, they eat. So that we interpret then the, the breaking of bread as both communion, which has priority as the center of this service, and eating, because eating is biblical. And when the first church said, what are we to do? They repented and they were baptized. And then they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And finally, number four, to prayer. We focus on prayer in every gathering of this community, be it a life group, elective ministry team, small group, whatever it is, a men's study, women's study, there's prayer there. And so I want to just ask you some rhetorical questions that are really easily understood. How many of you want to stand up here and say, uh, this week we need prayer because we're not sure how we're going to make all our bills? We don't really want to do that in a bunch of people whose faces you can barely make out because they're really big lights. But when you're in a smaller gathering, I'll tell you when I was in a smaller gathering just last week, two weeks ago, in the prayer meeting that was happening on Wednesday nights, we have men's study now, so stay tuned for the next prayer meeting. When I was in that prayer meeting, I felt comfortable saying, um, hey, I really want you to pray for my hearing and my dizziness because I had this big ear issue go on. I thought I was going to lose my hearing. It was really stressful. And we prayed there because I was really a lot more comfortable sharing that in a very small setting. Who would want to stand up here and say, uh, hey, pray for me. I'm having a procedure this week. That's a little much. So when we're in a smaller group then, you can know the needs of your brothers and sisters. You can pray for them and in that way love one another. But when you're in this gathering only, can you call somebody a brother or sister if you don't? ever practically love them? Maybe. I think it's important for us to reflect. God, God is not marked by how much he likes community. No, instead, God is, God is inherently community. It, Doug said it this morning. Genesis 1.26, let who? What did he say? Let us make man in our image. God is inherently community. Think about, the, think about the church. The church doesn't just like to gather. When you're not here and it's a building, is it a church? The answer is no. Say no. No, it is not the church. The church doesn't like community. It doesn't prefer it. It is inherently community. The church is community. So then when we're separated from it, we're not a part of the body. When, when community is, is correctly placed over efficiency or rugged individuality, or productivity, or any other number of things that have supplanted community in our lives. When community is held in the right regard, then we grow as believers, from believers to disciple makers, and we grow more into what Doug was just saying, the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. We reflect to one another and to the community 
the image of the only one by whose name you can be saved. That is what we reflect when we grow into maturity as a community. Some of you might have seen the movie Cast Away before. In the movie Cast Away, Tom Hanks plays a, a fellow named Chuck Nolan whose airplane crashes into the Pacific Ocean. He's the only survivor, and he finds in the wreckage this ball. And he finds this, this volleyball in the wreckage, and he, he draws a face on it, and he names it Wilson. And he does this because he's isolated and alone on an island. He's starting to lose his mind. So he has conversations with Wilson, which also sounds like losing your mind. He actually has arguments with Wilson. And if you've seen the movie, you know whether he wins or loses those arguments. Chuck finally decides to build a raft to escape this island. He wants to get back home. And of course, he takes Wilson with him. Well, then who remembers what happens when he's on the raft escaping the island? He loses Wilson. And his response is overwhelming grief. He just weeps and weeps and weeps because he's lost his only friend. He's gone. And while Chuck's story is fictional, it's a great illustration of a foundational reality. You and I were created in community. Let us make man in our image. We were born to a community. In God's original plan, there was a husband and a wife, and a child was born into, say it with me, Georgetown, a community. And then that family was destined to be in relationship with God in a family he put together which you and I might understand at a most fundamental level as a community. We were created in and for community. And when we get it out of whack, when these are here and this is here, it starts to look like anxiety and stress and hypertension and heart attacks and a mental health crisis. And I don't stand in front of you today to portend that the mental health crisis will be solved when you join a church, because it's here too. But I do intend to say that God has marked out a very crystal clear way for us as believers to live the life that we're trying to live by being increasingly efficient and productive and it starts by laying down those ways that are technological and industrial and embracing a more ancient way, an ancient way of community. Consider these, consider these truths. The Israelites, God's people, were born as a community they saw God act. They saw God miracles. They walked through dry land between the waters. They lived in a desert and found water and food because God brought water and food to his community. They embraced a new covenant as a community. They took the promised land 
as a community. Now reflect on what we just talked about as the church. Where does God find his people? In a community where he pours out his spirit and he gives blessing to be shared amongst his community. The church comes through the same waters that we see Israel come through. The church has a covenant established in blood just like Israel, but now it's Jesus. See, we were created in and for community. If you're not a part of this community of faith, make the decision today to find out more. You can meet me up front. You can meet in the back at the Next Steps booth. But if you're already a part of this community of faith, I want to tell you that there's a picnic next week that's not about you finding cheap eats. It's not about convenience. It's about connecting to your community of faith. And maybe you've been here for 40 years and you're very connected. And when you have a sniffle, all of your brothers and sisters in Christ know it. And they're praying for you immediately. But I would invite you to examine those around you and ask the question, are they connected to the community in the way that I'm connected to this community, to this body of Christ? Because, friends, if they're not, there's a simple way to make that happen. And it starts with a name tag and a hot dog at a shelter house that is not going to taste any different than most of the hot dogs you've ever had in your life. But what if I told you that by eating a hot dog and wearing a name tag and having a conversation with someone that is not connected to Christ the way that you are, you could impact eternity. Would you eat a hot dog? I know there's some of you that don't like hot dogs, and I bet you would eat that hot dog. In the coming months sorry, weeks, we're going to have life group signups and elective signups. And if you're not in a biblical community, it has been made plain for you today the wishes of our Lord and Savior for you to be a part of a biblical community. And I would argue that that is where you will find maturity in Christ. So back to the lost bag of baby blankets. <clears throat> Remember, these are not only Noah and Micah and Grace, but all of the kids who have come to live with us over some years. And so there are a lot of blankets, and most of them were handcrafted by someone, often Andrea's mother, Vera. Thank you. Um, back to the blankets. Have you ever been to a funeral? It's sad. And you know the moments after the funeral service where you travel out to the graveside and you follow that casket to the graveside. The solemnity and the quietness of that walk. That was the walk that Andrea and I took as we got up from the kitchen table and we walked out to the garage and up the steps into the attic, held our breaths, turned on the light, and there was a bag, thanks be to God, of baby blankets. Has the ancient way of community found its way into the pile of things that are no longer important in your life. Father God, it's my prayer that you would, by your Holy Spirit, knit us together in unity and love that we may be a perfect representation of Jesus 
to the wider community who's not gathered with us here today, and also to one another, that by your grace and the sharing of your grace through the sharing of blessings and hard times and the sharing of blessings and good times, by the gifts of your Holy Spirit, would you build us up into your likeness for our good, for the good of those who don't yet know you, and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.